0: We invite the children here, ages kindergarten to second grade, to be dismissed to Children's Church if they'd like to head out. With the rest of you, open up your Bibles with me to Romans chapter 1, verses 16 to 17. Romans chapter 1, verses 16 to 17. You will find that on page 1112 of your pew Bible. If we're going to use a pew Bible. Romans chapter 1. And this morning we're focusing on verses 16 and 17 as well. Well, this is the third week of our Easter focus series that we've entitled Give the Gospel. We've got these posters up around the church. Give the Gospel. And as we're getting ready for Easter, we're just thinking about our responsibility as Christians to be heralds of the resurrection that Jesus has commanded his disciples to make disciples. So in a sense, we're kind of calling our church to give up our Christian anonymity for Lent. To, to, uh, uh, did they say Lent or Lent? I meant Lent. Uh, to, um, t- to be those who are willing to talk about Christ. And we've made a subtitle for this series, Overcome the Obstacles That Keep Us Silent. In other words, I think part of the reason we don't give the gospel more is because of a series of kind of mental... Uh, and psychological obstacles, uh, misconceptions about evangelism that really keep us from sharing our faith the way we should. So uh, at the beginning of this series, two Sundays ago, we looked at the question of uh, intolerance and tolerance. You know, is evangelism fundamentally intolerant? And we looked at Matthew chapter 28. Do you remember this? The Great Commission where Jesus says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go make disciples of all nations. So so we have authorization from Christ to be his ambassadors to the world. And then last Sunday, we looked at the obstacle of, you know, I don't know what to say. Like, if I am supposed to give the gospel? Like, what, what is it I'm supposed to talk about? And so we looked at Luke, chapter 24, where Jesus gives kind of a basic gospel summary. And we saw that the gospel is the message of the cross and the empty tomb with the call to repentance as a response. So it's the message of the cross. That we are sinners under the judgment of God, but in love, as we just sang, God sent His own Son to bear the judgment that we deserve so that we could be forgiven. That that same Jesus who was crucified was buried. He was raised on the third day. And now He stands as the King, summoning us to repentance as our response. So that's the basic gospel message that we learned last Sunday. Well, I want to tackle kind of a third obstacle today. And it sort of goes like this. Lord, I know that You've authorized us to give the Gospel. And I think I've got a grasp on the basic outline of the Gospel. But, you know, the problem is, Lord, I think You've just picked the wrong guy for the job. You know, I'm not the right person for this. I'm underpowered. You need someone who can really sell this. Yeah, I understand what the Gospel is, but I'm not the right person. You know, Lord, I took a Myers-Briggs test and I I found out I'm an introvert. Okay, so... um, I'm not really one of those extroverted, go-around, talk-to-lots people. You put me in a room with a bunch of people, I'm the guy on the side pretending to read things on the bulletin board, but I'm not really. I'm just trying to like not talk to people because that's how I am. Uh, Lord, uh, you know, you look at me and I'm I'm not articulate. I bumble over my words. I don't know how to talk very well. I know I'm going to goof this up. I'm underpowered. Lord, you want me to give the gospel? I'm from another country, and everyone hears my accent. And all of a sudden, they instantly know I wasn't raised in America. And so they instantly put me in a category that says, well, I don't really listen to this person because they're not really from here. And so I just feel like I don't fit in that way. Lord, I'm not attractive. Lord, I'm not wealthy. Lord, I'm not charismatic. I'm not famous. Um, you know, God, I'm too old. Nobody listens to old people. Lord, I'm too young. I'm just a teenager. No one listens to young people. You know, Lord, I'm middle-aged. I'm just part of the suburban masses. No one's going to pay attention to me. you know? Lord, what you need to do is you need to save some famous people. They have power. You know, you've got to save Brad Pitt and Hannah Montana and, and Tom Brady. And if they became Christians, well, then everyone would listen to them. You know, that's the secret. You know, we, forget this. We just all need to pray for the salvation of celebrities because that's how the Gospel is going to spread. But as for me... You know, I'm like a 25 watt bulb, and you need a Hollywood spotlight. You need something very strong shining the gospel, and I'm not it. I'm too weak. I'm too small. I'm too insignificant. So we feel underpowered. Well, Romans chapter 1, verses 16 to 17. I think Romans chapter 1, verse 16 is one of my favorite texts in the New Testament. I just love this passage, especially as we think about the gospel, and it has something to tell us that I think can liberate us from those feelings of, I guess, for lack of a better word, spiritual inadequacy to be gospel heralds for Jesus. Romans chapter one, verses sixteen to seventeen. Let me just read it. it says, "I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God." For the salvation of everyone who believes. First for the Jew, then for the Gentile. For in the Gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed. A righteousness that is by faith from first to last. Just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. So here we are in Romans. And uh, before we just jump into the verse, you know, I I always like to set the context. I I really hate just kind of pulling a verse out of context and talking about it. So since we haven't been in Romans, let me just do a quick... Romans pop quiz for you. Okay. Uh, Romans is what type of literature? Does anyone know? Is it a graphic novel? You know, what is it? It's a a letter. It's a letter. This was a letter. Second question. There was a letter written by whom? Paul. Okay, it's right there in verse 1 of Romans chapter 1. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus. All right, this is kind of an easy one. It was written to Christians living in what city? Yeah, Rome. Okay. Here's a fourth question. True, false. True, false. The Apostle Paul started the church in Rome. False. He'd actually never been there when he wrote this letter. There were Christians there, and he wanted to go there, but he hadn't been there yet. This was his intention to go there, so he's making communication with this church to which he'd never been. Look down at chapter 1, verse 11. He says, I long to see you so that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to make you strong. That is, that you and I may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I planned many times to come to you, but have been prevented from doing so until now, in order that I might have a harvest among you, just as I've had among the other Gentiles. So he's he's intended to come. He's never been. He wants a harvest there. He's never had it. He wants to go and preach the gospel to these people, but he never has. Verse 14, I'm obligated both to the Greeks and the non-Greeks, both to the wise and the foolish. That is why I'm so eager to preach the gospel also to you who are at Rome. So, Paul wants to... Anyway, that's the context. This is a letter of introduction, if you want to put it that way, where Paul is writing to the Romans, the Roman Christians. He's like, I want to come to you, but I haven't been able to so far. So, what he does, what the letter of Romans does, is it lays out the gospel message. Because notice what Paul says in verse 16 then. Then that comes into our verse. I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God. And then what he does in the rest of Romans, really, Romans is kind of taking what the gospel is and stretching it out and thinking about it and all of its implications. So uh, that's why this Romans is such a precious book to Christians. This is why it's kind of a first among equals in some ways when you think about Christian theology. Because here you have Paul, the great... Uh, evangelist to the to the Gentiles telling us in detail, theologically, historically, biblically, what the gospel is. He's stretching it out before us. That's why it's such an important book. And that's why chapter 1, verse 16 is such an important verse. It's not just any random verse. But in any ways, I think chapter 1, verse 16 is kind of the programmatic announcement of what the whole letter is about. It's, it's sort of the thematic bold, you know, headline. You know, like, give the gospel is our title of the sermon series. His is, is all about the gospel. And so this is a really critical verse for understanding Romans. R- the gospel is the content of what of the uh, letter to the Romans from Paul. Okay, so let's look at what Paul has to say then. Let's look at this important verse, verse 16. I love the opening line. I am not ashamed of the gospel. I don't have a tattoo, but if I got a tattoo... I think I'd like that <laughs> on my chest. I am not ashamed of the gospel. Now, I love that. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. You know, Paul has overcome the obstacles that keep us silent. Somehow, Paul has come to see something about the gospel that he is no longer afraid to give the gospel. Not only that, I mean, if you know the, the biography of Paul. This guy suffered abuse for the gospel. It's not just that he was brave and was willing to tell people, he was willing to suffer for it. He would go into cities, he would give the gospel, they'd mock him, they'd tease him, mobs would start, they'd beat him, they'd try to kill him, they'd run him out of town, they'd spread lies about him. He'd go to the next town, they'd chase him. I mean, this this dude suffered for the gospel. So what? So I'm like, okay, Paul. What? How did you crack the code on this? Somehow you're not ashamed of the gospel, Paul, and and what? And you're willing to suffer for it. What is it? Why isn't Paul ashamed of the gospel? Is it because Paul was a master salesman? He just he had the Jesus sales pitch down, and he was so convincing and so charismatic and so smooth. He could, you know, he could, uh, to, you know, say the old cliche, sell, uh, you know ice to the, to the Eskimos. I mean, this guy was so clever. Is that it? Was his power in himself? Is it just that we're underpowered, but Paul was very highly powered as a, an evangelist and a salesman? No. Look at verse 16. I am not ashamed of the Gospel because... Okay, what is it, Paul? What's the secret? It is the power of God. God. For the salvation of everyone who believes, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. What is the power? The gospel itself is the power. It is the power. Not I am the power or I have the power. The gospel is the power. And notice it's the power of God. That's a lot of power. You know, God's power. God is so powerful, He created the universe. God is the one who spoke and the universe came into being. God is the one who right at this very moment, even as we listen, is upholding the fabric of reality so that the laws of physics continue to work, so that my molecules continue to hold together so I can preach this sermon. I mean, God's power is sustaining and binding everything around us, even if we say we don't believe in him. Fortunately, God believes in us, otherwise we wouldn't exist. It's his power that sustains all things. It's his power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead. So that's a lot of power. So the gospel is this sort of conduit for the power of God. I kind of think of the gospel as like fiber optic cable. You know, fiber optics, they take a glass, hollow glass tube, and through processes that I don't understand, stretch it out and stretch it, stretch it, stretch it. So it becomes, you know, just thousands and thousands of feet long, but it's hollow on the inside. So if you put photons of light into that little, thin, tiny glass tube. It, it ch- travels down it at light speed. And so it, it's an incredibly fast form of communication. Uh, this is the thing Verizon's selling now. You know that Verizon Fios, they have all these funny commercials for it. Fios stands for Fiber Optic Service. I, I got a call this week from some lady. She just called me at the church, hi. I was like, hi, You know, just want to let you know, we have Fios in your neighborhood. And I was like, great. I nice talking to you. Said, <laughs> you know, Fios is in my, in this neighborhood now. Our church could have Fios. We could have fiber optic service. Think of the gospel as Fios. It's this fiber optic cable that connects this dark, sinful world to the power of God in heaven. And the gospel is the conduit through which the, the power of God and His transforming light travels into this world. We, as Christians, are simply the people going around saying, did you know you have Fios in your neighborhood? It's here. I'd like to tell you about it. But it's not us. It's the file. It's, it's the Gospel itself that contains the power. It's not us. right? And look what kind of power it is. Look back at verse 16. I am not ashamed of the Gospel, for it is the power of God for what? Salvation. The primary thing that this Gospel accomplishes is to reconcile us in our lostness and sinfulness to reconcile us back to the God who made us, to bring forgiveness of our sins. It is not primarily power to become financially independent. It is not primarily power to heal us from our diseases. Can God's power do that? Of course. God can help us with our finances. God is able to heal. We pray for healing. But the gospel is for something far more important. It's for the salvation of our souls which is far more important than the healing of cancer or the recovering of economies. The gospel is an eternal message. Look at verse 17. He says, For in the gospel a righteousness from God is revealed. So righteousness is my deepest need. I need to be forgiven and to stand righteous before God. A righteousness from God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last. So the power of God and His righteousness through Jesus can come to us through the gospel and we receive it simply by faith. We don't receive God's righteousness by trying to fix our lives up or self-improvement or becoming more religious. We receive it simply by trusting God to send His power to us and it comes through the gospel. And notice how much power there is. He says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because the power of God for the salvation. And how much is there? Well, it's for everyone who believes, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. So there's so much power of salvation in God's gospel that it's sufficient for everybody, everywhere, all nations, all people, even New England. I'm awesome. There's so much power. Haven't we heard this theme now for three Sundays? First Sunday, Matthew chapter 28, go and make disciples of all nations. Luke chapter 24, last Sunday, repentance and forgiveness of sins must be preached in my name to all nations. And now we're talking about the gospel again. Seems like whenever the gospel comes up, you have to have in it this concept that it's for all nations, that this is not just for one people, not just for Jews or Gentiles, but it's here. And that's just so encouraging for us here in, you know, spiritually dark, challenging, however you want to describe it, New England. That the power of the gospel is here. Phios is in our neighborhood, and we can give the gospel, and God's power is available for the salvation even here in this area. I mean, it's awesome. Now, I find this truth incredibly liberating because when I'm overcome with feelings of inadequacy as a gospel conveyor, and I think, look, Lord, you got the wrong guy for the job. I don't have what it takes. I'm not smart enough. I'm not funny enough. I'm not clever enough. You need someone with more star power, more light social power. I don't have it. You know, it's like, no, 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 no. It's not about how much power we don't have or do have. The power is in the gospel. I find that amazingly liberating. That means my job is simply, it's very simple. All I have to do is give the gospel. That's it. You know, my job isn't to sway people, woo people, trick people, convince people, be sneaky and savvy. I just have to give the gospel. And as I am. That's the liberating part, isn't it? That you don't have to be someone else. If you're going to give the gospel, you don't have to be like, okay, what's an evangelist like? I've got to kind of take on an evangelist persona. Maybe I get like a white leisure suit, you know? And uh, I don't know, what's an evangelist like? Like slick back my hair and talk in a funny accent, try to sound like an evangelist. No, no, no. Just be yourself. Be who you are, the words you use, and give the gospel through who you are and who God made you to be. That's very liberating. It's also challenging because there's a responsibility, too. The responsibility is we have to give the gospel. That's the other side of it. It's both liberating and it defines the challenge before us. I think this is um, something that we, as American evangelicals—I put myself in this boat—have to constantly wrestle against because, um, you know, historically speaking, American evangelicalism has gone through a dramatic paradigm shift. Uh, it, it, you know, from where from where we started as American evangelicals, to where we are today, something dramatic changed. It changed around the year 1800. Around the beginning of the 19th century, historically, there was, there was a massive watershed transition from one view of evangelism and revival to a, a view of evangelism and revival that I think is dominant today and really puts pressure on us to have the right techniques and methodology to convince people of the gospel. You know, before the 1800s, so down from the, the pilgrims and the Puritans and the Revolutionary War and the First Great Awakening, There was a view of evangelism that's kind of like what we're studying here. It was the idea that, look, our job is just to be faithful to the gospel and God will take care of the results. And we can't make a revival happen. We just have to give the gospel faithfully and God will take care of the results. So so there was a sense upon the dependency of God's power and seeing our job is just to be faithful to get the truth right and proclaim it. So during the First Great Awakening, when George Whitefield came through one of his uh, multiple tours of the East Coast of the United States and he came to Boston, and there was this massive revival in Boston where, you know, 30,000, 40,000 people were crushing onto Boston Commons to hear the gospel. It was amazing. And, and Boston was transformed. It was transformed by the power of God. And they asked, you know, preachers would testify to what happened. And so the Boston preachers were there. And, you know, one pastor said something to the effect of, I didn't preach anything different. And I didn't preach it any differently. Because I gave the same message I've been given for 20 years in my ministry, and I've been preaching it the same way. The difference is, instead of a steady trickle of people coming to faith in Christ, suddenly they were coming to faith in Christ by the hundreds. So it's not that the Great Awakening was the discovery of some new style or trick or approach. It was just the power of God in God's sovereign timing when God chose to bless. But like I said, something shifted around the early 19th century. You know, you think about the 19, uh, the early 1800s in America. It was it was a, a, a revolutionary kind of time. We just come out of the Revolutionary War, and it was a time of of amazing westward expansion for America. You know, people were pouring immigrants were pouring into America, and people were coming from the East Coast and pouring westward. You know, the Kentucky Territory was just exploding with population, and the spirit was in America. It was very much kind of a can-do. Uh, frontiersman sort of spirit. We can do it. Which is, you know, good, good to have that kind of confidence, I guess. But it kind of came into the church. And the idea was, look, we're leaving the old ways behind. There is a new spirit now. We can do this. We can make converts. And, and there was this one person in particular who was the champion of this transition. His name was Charles Finney. And Finney, who was, kind of came at the end of the Second Great Awakening, uh, would tell people, he'd say, look, the reason you don't have revivals you haven't used the right techniques. He would say, you've got to get a revival up. You don't just pray and wait for it to come down. You've got to use the right strategies and techniques to get it up. And since then, you know, once that, that, that shift took place, we've never really shifted back. And you see it, I think, in the 20th century. You see it in the, the 50s and the 60s with mass evangelism movements. You see it in the 70s and 80s with the seeker church movement. I, I think you still see it today, kind of ironically, in the emergent church movement. But, but it's just that same spirit... Taking new forms as we try to say, okay, the way to reach people is we got to do this or we have to do that. It's about the lighting or the music or we need candles or we need, um, you know, we need the right kind of atmosphere. We need the right kind of sales pitch. And we just keep falling into this idea. And so I think even as Americans and evangelicals, we realize this is a historical problem. We need to come back to the power of the God in the gospel itself. Our job is not to try to sell people better. It's just to be faithful to give the gospel. And that only applies to me as an individual. It applies to us as a congregation. It's just giving the gospel. The power is in the gospel, not in the presentation of the gospel. That's where the power lies. But there's even more to it than that. You know, as I was thinking about this, I feel like we have to take it one step further why it's so important to understand that the power is in the gospel and not in us. And, and this is why. Because all right, we've talked about the fact that we are inadequate to save anybody, that the power lies in the gospel itself. That's how God works. But it's worse than that. <laughs> because not only am I inadequate to save anybody, but the person receiving the gospel, hearing the gospel, is inadequate to respond the right way in order to be saved. So it's a double problem. I can't save anybody and nobody can be saved on their own apart from the power of God. So the person hearing the gospel is also in a conundrum because, we're, you know, the gospel is proclaimed. It's the cross and the empty tomb. And then we're supposed to, what, repent and believe. But the unaided sinner cannot repent and believe. That's how bad our sin condition is. In other words, it's not just about us being persuasive and and cr- creative enough with intellectual arguments it's that there, there's a spiritual deadness in every person that can only become by, overcome by the power of God. So even if I'm the most persuasive, tricky, charming, clever salesperson for Jesus in the world, nobody will actually be saved unless the power of God operates because our condition as sinners is that, as Paul says, we are dead in our sins. Look back to Romans. Check this out. This is really critical to get this. That there's not only an ad- inadequacy in the evangelist, there's an inadequacy in the hearer. Look at, uh, so, so we have this introduction to Romans, verses one, chapter 1, verse 16 to 17. And then he launches into the main body of his argument about the gospel. So now he's going to tell us the gospel. And look where he starts in verse 18. This is where he starts in his gospel explanation. The wrath of God. <laughs> I thought we were talking about the good news. No, no. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness, since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that men are without excuse. So, he starts off his gospel explanation by saying all of us are under the wrath and judgment of God. Like, wow, that's an interesting way to start explaining the good news. That's how Paul explains it. And then he goes on, and I'm not going to read every section, but chapter 1, chapter 2 of Romans, chapter 3 of Romans, all the way up to Romans chapter 3, verse 20, is a stinging indictment of our sinfulness before God and how we're under God's curse. He hasn't even talked about the gospel. He hasn't even talked about Jesus. It's just this lengthy uh, critique of our spiritual condition, claiming that both Jews and Gentiles alike are under sin. Like, for instance, let me just give you one more for instance. Look back at Romans chapter 1, verse 28. Here's an example. He says, Furthermore, since they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, he gave them over to a depraved mind to do what ought ought to be done. They became filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They're gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They're senseless, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Just a description of the human condition, this ruthless world in which we live. And so he concludes it in chapter 3. If you go down to chapter 3, verse 9. So he goes through this whole long argument about our sinfulness before God. Here's his conclusion, chapter 3, verse 9. What shall we conclude then? Are we any better? Not at all. We have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under sin. The whole world has rebelled against God. All mankind has fallen short of the glory of God as he says in 3.23. There's no one who can stand before God and say, God, I'm good enough. We're all lawbreakers and rebels. Look at then what he does in verse 10 of chapter 3. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands, no one who seeks God. So there it is. Our spiritual condition apart from God's grace is not only are we guilty before God's law, but we don't even seek God. In other words, I think when we use this word sin, which we hardly ever do, but when we do, we think of sin as sort of like, I did one little thing wrong. Like, I told a lie. That was a sin. And Paul's like, no, 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 no. Sin is a whole life orientation away from seeking God. Nobody seeks God. Which is kind of interesting. As I was reading that, I, I don't know, maybe your mind goes, I was just sort of reflecting. I was like, well, then what do we make of this whole seeker thing today? In the churches. You know, there's a whole movement of evangelism that's centered around trying to reach out to seekers. There's kind of this new title that's been given to people who aren't Christian. Should we reach seekers? You know, is there such thing as a seeker in the world? And I was kind of like, I'd be curious to hear what your thoughts are on it too. But I kind of came up with a conclusion it's sort of a yes and no kind of answer. The yes, at one level, there are seekers. I mean, obviously, you've met people who are saying, is there a God? I'd really like to know. Is there a purpose and meaning in life? Why did this tragedy happen to me? What's God's... You know, I lost a child. How can God do that? I would like... I'm seeking the truth to that answer. I really want God to, to talk to me and show me things. You know, so at one level, people are seeking God. I think at that kind of level. But at a deeper level, I think we could say, no, nobody is seeking God. In this sense, nobody is seeking God on his terms in a saving way. You know, we're seeking God kind of from our perspective, things we want to know and we'd like to talk to God about. But no one's seeking God in a gospel way, in the sense of, God, I am seeking to repent of my sins, be forgiven, obey you, and love and follow your Son, Jesus Christ. That's a different kind of seeking. That's just not seeking on my terms, like, I wonder if there's purpose in life. And we could talk about that, and that can sometimes be an entryway. But there's a deeper level of seeking that... Romans is saying nobody does. Nobody says, God, I want to seek you on your terms as the King and as the Lord. And so in that sense, you know, there's no seeking taking place. So, you see the predicament. Not only are we inadequate to save anybody, but before we're saved, we're inadequate even to respond to the Gospel because we're not even seeking the Lord. We're fundamentally turned away from Him. Let me show you from another place. Look at Romans chapter 8. Flip over a couple pages in Romans. Chapter 8. Look at verse um, 6 of Romans chapter 8. Here Paul is contrasting the mind under the control of sin and then the mind under the control of the Holy Spirit. He says in verse 6, The mind of sinful man is death, but the mind controlled by the Spirit is life and peace. Here we go. The sinful mind is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor, get that, can it do so? So we are both unwilling and unable to respond the way God wants us to respond to the gospel message. We're stuck. Those controlled by the sinful nature cannot please God. We're stuck, and we like being stuck, and we don't want to be unstuck. That's the nature of our sinful condition. it's, It's heavy. This is heavy. Jesus put it this way. Jesus said, "Everyone who sins is a slave to sin." Again, this idea of being bound to sin. The apostle Paul put it this way in Ephesians chapter two. He said, uh, "He said, as for you, you were what? Dead in your transgressions and sins." You know, dead means un- dead means dead. We're unresponsive to God. Uh, think of, here's an analogy. This is I didn't come up with this analogy, but it's sort of an old preacher did, and I'll just kind of modernize it, but. Imagine you were walking through the woods of New England. And you decided to go off a trail and just kind of wander around the woods. And you found one of those cool old walls, you know, those old stone walls that are just randomly in the woods around here because there used to be a farm there and now it's overgrown. So you're like, oh, cool, I'll follow this wall. And you're following it along. And all of a sudden you come upon, the person comes upon, the foundation of the old farmhouse. Some old house used to be there. And I've actually found one of those once when I was out mountain biking and kind of got lost. And, and it's like, oh, this is so cool. And so you start walking around the farmhouse and all of a sudden, as walking around the farmhouse, the ground gives way beneath you, and you fall 25 feet into the old well of the old farmhouse that was covered up by debris, and you didn't see it. And whoop, you hit the bottom. Now, the question is, how are you going to get out of this well? Well, you have two options. One is you climb out, if it's possible to climb these slippery, crumbly walls. The other option is what? Someone's got to come along, lower you the rope, and you grab on, and then they hoist you up. It's kind of a picture of our predicament. We have fallen into sin. And there's two ways out. We can either try to climb out by being good, decent people on our own efforts and work our way back up to heaven. Or someone can put the gospel rope down in and say, Hey, grab the rope. Put your faith in Jesus. You know, come on, grab on. You know, so so what, which is the one that's really going to get us out of the well? The answer is Neither. Because I forgot to tell you that when the person hit the bottom of the well, they had a heart attack, and their heart has now stopped. And they're unconscious. So how will they get out of the well? Can they climb out? Maybe we need more effective rope dangling. Maybe we need to learn better techniques of how to dangle the rope more persuasively and attractively. Like, ropey, 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 you know? (laughs) Oh, you don't like that rope? Let me, let me get you a more postmodern rope, you know. Oh yeah. Oh, you don't like that? I'll get you a more, you know, a more country western rope, because you're kind of a country western person. Oh, a country western. It's a lasso. Like it's not it doesn't matter. His heart is stopped. He can't grab the rope. We are dead in our transgressions and sins. People aren't neutral in their sins. They're, we're dead. We need power. And it's so critical that we grasp this. In other words, we are so lost in our sin, we've fallen so deep and so hard that, it's, that we can't even respond the way God wants us to, nor do we have any inclination to do so, apart from God's grace. That sinners, if God takes His hand off of sinners, they will just whoop, go right over the cliff like lemmings. That's what we do. That is our natural condition. We are so lost. So we not only need forgiveness for our sins, we need to be saved from ourselves. I was uh, listening to a new album this week by um, this guy named Head. His, uh, his name is Brian Welch. He was a former musician with the band Korn, and which is a really hardcore uh, metal band. So he, he became a Christian. And he has produced his first sort of Christian hardcore album. I was playing it for my wife, and my wife does not like hardcore music. <laughs> She's like, please turn that off. I'm like, no, but listen to the words. It's so good. But anyway. Uh, And he wrote an autobiography. You know what the autobiography's title is? Save Me From Myself. It's also the title of his first album, Save Me From Myself. It's like, I need you, God, I'm so stuck that I need you to save me from me. That's how bad it is. I don't just need a a little cure, a little convincing argument. I need power. What the guy in the well needs is for a medic to rappel down with uh, a portable automatic defibrillator. Rip his shirt open. Put the things on. Clear! That's what's needed to bring this person back. He needs power. Power! He needs gospel power. And so when we bring the gospel, it's like we're bringing the defibrillator. And we're like, Alright, God, we hope that You'll do this work. We need Your power to come and save. The good news is that Jesus Christ... Has life-raising power. That Jesus is precisely that—a bringer back of the dead, because He Himself came back from the dead. The power of His resurrection can bring life to dead sinners. And and so it's so. Isn't this funny? We are incapable of responding to the gospel message, and yet when the gospel message is proclaimed, that is the means by which God makes us capable to respond to the gospel message. It's kind of of interesting how it all works out. So do you see the order now? This is very important. I, I just hope you really burn this into your mind. Understand this. It's a little theology, but you really have to get this. There's an order. First, the gospel is proclaimed. Second, in God's sovereign timing, power is exerted, and the person is regenerated, reborn, born again, however you want to put it. Then third, as a result of that, a person repents and believes in Jesus. Being born again precedes repentance and faith in Jesus. Because if there were no born again, the person would never repent and believe. God's activity is prior to our response, which is merely the result of His gracious work in our lives. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. Or as Paul says, uh, again, back to Ephesians, for it is by what? You guys know this verse, some of you do. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this, this faith, this grace, is not from yourselves. It's a what? Gift of God. So even the faith I have to respond to the gospel, it's because God put the Holy Spirit paddles on me, boom, and brought me back to life, spiritually. So it is the grace of God from before eternity past until eternity future. And in the middle of time, God is the one who is saving sinners. We're not saving ourselves. So because I am inadequate as a gospel presenter, and because my hearer is inadequate as a gospel receiver, we really have to stick to this basic purpose, which is, it's very simple, give the gospel. In your own way, in your own language, based on who God made you to be, but give the gospel simply and plainly. That simple message of the cross and the empty tomb and the call to repentance is the power of God for the salvation of all who believe. This week, down in Rehoboth, Massachusetts, which is way down, somewhere down there. I've been there. I don't even know how I got there. It's just way down there, down by Rhode Island. There's a pastor who's going to be baptizing two 15-year-olds. I talked to him this week, and he was telling me about it. Another Baptist church down there. And, uh, and so it's an interesting story. There's a 15-year-old girl in his church named Ashley. Ashley's a Christian. She went to a slumber party with four of her 15-year-old friends and at that slumber party, rather than talking about who they think has a chance of winning American Idol or talking about who's cute, that for some, for, by God's grace, Ashley began talking about Jesus. And she spent the, the evening, until they went to bed, just giving the gospel in her plain terms and explaining it. And God's power was unleashed. And those four girls came to church that Sunday and the next Sunday and the next Sunday. And then someone saw them all coming in together together. And so some astute uh, adult said, Hi, girls, would you like to get together for a Bible study? I'd love to teach you. And so some woman got these girls together. And so this lady and these five girls got together, and they have been studying the Bible for three months. And then this week in Rehoboth, two of them are being baptized. And when, you, and when you ask them, this pastor is saying, about when it is that they were saved, they all trace their story back to the slumber party. I love that. It's like, no shtick, no polish, no packaging, no, you know, let's hold a youth rally and get some big name national band to come in and that'll get the... It's just Ashley at a slumber party giving the Gospel. And the power of God for the Gospel is sufficient. That's all you need. And little Ashley can do it. In New England where nobody believes, you know? Among 15-year-olds, and oh, that's a lost generation, you know. And boom, the power of God. Because one 15-year-old was faithful to give the Gospel. Let's pray. Would you just take a moment of silent prayer to just confess your faith in the Gospel and to thank Jesus for its power. And to pray for that faith in his power. And, and I also, if, if you are, maybe the prayer you need to pray this morning is, is Brian Welch's prayer. Save me from myself. Lord Jesus, I can't even respond the right way. I am so screwed up. I am so far in the hole of sin that I can't even want to serve you the right way. Lord Jesus, save me from myself. Bring me back to life. Take a few moments of silent prayer. Christ. Hear our prayers and have mercy on us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you take your hymnals?